Good morning again, Grace Church. How you doing? All right. Well, I don't know. This may be bad news for some of you, but Pastor Jonathan actually said that I have as long as I want to preach today. So I don't know what that means for you. I couldn't believe it. He said, yeah, preach for as long as you want. I said, you sure, Pastor Jonathan? He said, yeah, preach for as long as you want. But just keep in mind that people leave in 30 minutes. And so I said, okay, very funny, Pastor Jonathan. But no, I do have a message, a very important message to share with you this morning, and it's deeply personal for me. And so I covet your prayers uh, today as we're going to j- jump back into Psalm 139, as we're in the middle of a series of messages called Near, uh, called Near. And I'm going to be paying attention to uh, specifically to verse 17 and 18 of Psalm 139. But for context's sake, I'm going to begin the reading at verse 13. Again, y'all praying with me? All right. Oh, that was just a few of y'all. I need all y'all to pray today. Amen. Amen. All right. Beginning with verse 13, Psalm 139, beginning with verse 13. How about I pray? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word. I never take that for granted. I just pray, God, that you would flood me with an overwhelming sense of your spirit that you empower me and give me fresh anointing and fresh wind to communicate and convey what you say in your word as it relates to our identity and worth in Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Beginning with verse 13, the text says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, he says, I'm still with you. Well, this morning, I've simply titled this message, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? I was taught in Bible college that you should never make a sermon be about yourself. And that's my aim today, and that's usually my aim. But the text that we're reading today is deeply personal for me. And if you allow me, I'm going to be a little bit transparent and vulnerable before you. And my hope is that my vulnerability will be a source of encouragement to somebody in this room. July 19th this past year, I lost my mother to a five-year battle from breast cancer. My mom had me at a young age. Uh, She was 14 when I was conceived. She was 15 when I was born. And so you could imagine the odds stacked against her from day one. But my mother was tough, y'all. And she tried the best she could. She did the best she could. And as a single mom trying to raise me, and then my younger sister came along a year later. And so I give honor to my mother for her sacrifice. Amen. Amen. About a week after my mom's funeral, 
I got a surprise text message from an old family friend. (laughs) And this old family friend uh, said that we have to talk and it's pretty urgent. At least in the text, it sounded urgent to me because he pretty much said, I have some some very important information that I need to make you aware of and a phone call just ain't gonna get it. And so I agreed to meet with him. We met at a coffee shop. We sat down and right away he gets right into it. He said, for years, the rumors had been circulating and the suspicions had been raised. He said, this is going to be hard for you to accept because it's certainly hard for me to tell you, but here it is. He says, I believe that you are my biological son. And after I got up from the floor, (laughs) right, I said, well, what makes you so certain? He says, well, it was around the time when you were born that me and your mom were dating, so to speak, and then after you were born, she insisted that you belong to your dad, and so I just kind of left it alone until later on in life where the rumors resurfaced and people started talking. Now, my first impulse, if I'm honest with you, is to be dismissive. I was pretty dismissive about it. I said, well, what difference does it make now? I'm 50 years old now. I mean, it's not going to change my life, and I got my own kids, got four kids at home, and I'm moving on. I'm happy and content in the Lord. And I said, thanks a lot for the information, and thanks for ruining my life. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I just kind of went home and thought I could just brush it off until I found myself restless at night. I was up tossing and turning, found myself, I couldn't sleep. I'm thumbing through old photos, trying to compare resemblance between me and my half-brothers and half-sister, and I'm trying to find some way to connect. And then all these thoughts just started flooding my memory and flooding my mind. I kept asking myself, maybe this is why I always felt different growing up. I felt like I needed closure. And so I reached back out to this man, and I asked, hey, would you mind meeting together again? And he agreed to meet once again, and we sat down, and I said, would you mind doing a DNA test? Let's just go ahead and figure this thing out. He says, I'll do it if you do it. And I said, okay, well, let's do it. And so we did the swab, and we sent the swab off to the lab, and about a week or so later, the swab came back, and four months ago today, the results were confirmed, 99.9% positive that this man was my biological father. And just like that, 50 years of my life's history felt in many ways like a facade, like a a charade. I didn't even know who I was no more. I mean, it hit me hard, y'all. I'm trying to find my identity now. I'm wondering what life is all about. I mean, who am I anymore? And I'm like, does anybody else, is anybody else going through anything like this? I felt like I was all alone. From the claps, I can tell somebody know what I'm talking about. Because nowadays they got this thing called 24 and me, or is it 23 and me? And they got all these ancestry.coms, and it's a it's a lot of secrets coming into the light. And so I started searching online for some resources that can help me find my equilibrium. I was stuck, y'all. I was, who am I anymore? And one resource. It was a blogger who went on to describe a similar experience. And it resonated well with me because I thought that's exactly how I feel right now. Listen to how she describes it. She says, it's very much like dealing with a sudden death in the family, though nobody necessarily has died. In a sense, something else has died, who you think you are and who you thought you were. Who you think you are 
and who you thought you were. What do you do when a key piece of your identity is now gone? What do you do? What do you do when, when the core of who you thought you were is now lost? Who do you turn to for help? Or to put it another way, maybe this hits home for you. In a world filled with mixed messages about our identity and self-worth, where do you turn for definition? Maybe your situation is like mine, maybe just not as graphic. Uh, maybe I'm talking to somebody who, uh, for a long time, your search for belonging has led you into some toxic relationships. And you sought identity from relationships and these relationships have been sour and, and they've been toxic for you. Or maybe I'm talking to somebody who, for the longest, you've sought your identity from your career and from making money. And now you're retired. And now you don't even, you look in the mirror, you don't even know who you are anymore because you've sought your identity from what you do. Or maybe I'm talking to somebody, you sought your identity from your gender and now you're confused about that. And your confusion has led you to depression. In a world filled with mixed messages about our identity, what makes you, you? This is what I wrestled with over the last four months. Been wrestling with that particular question. And I found help from Psalm 139. Because Psalm 139 is a classic psalm of praise. It's composed by King David. And those of you who read your Bibles, you know King David's background wasn't always pretty. In fact, some would argue that David came from a family of dysfunction. He was overlooked and devalued and even forsaken by his own parents. He was often overcome by his own sins. The Bible reflects the fact that David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He lacked discipline. He showed poor judgment. And these types of flaws and deficiencies could create a real crisis of identity for some, but not for King David. Because David knew his God. And the more David knew his God, the more David knew his self. And that's why David was able to go on to sing songs from his brokenness and even pen poems from his pain because David discovered some things about God through his suffering that inevitably deepened his own self-awareness. This is why he was able to pen poems like Psalm 37, 25. I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor their children begging bread. You see, what David learned just simply through his experiences with Jehovah God is that he was utterly dependent upon God for his provision. Psalm 2710, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord, he'll receive me. He'll receive me. You see, David didn't find security from his parental lineage. And David didn't find it from his culture or his heritage or his background. No, David found his security from God's acceptance of him. You see, the only thing worse than not knowing who you are is not knowing whose you are. And David knew early on in life that this life was his life. And it ultimately belonged to God. This is why David and his Psalms, most of them, <laughs> they're deeply personal. 
they're, they're reflective, they're contemplative because they express the intimate nature of his relationship with God. But out of all of the Psalms written by King David, Psalm 139 is clearly the most intimate of all. A quick summary of the Psalm reveals a survey of God's intimate knowledge of David. In verse one and two, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Verse seven, David surveys God's presence with him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then in verse 13, David surveys God's creative touch for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's at this point in the psalm that David has made much of God's wisdom and omniscience. He's made much of his omnipotence and his omnipresence. So much so that by the time David gets to Psalm verse 17, or, or verse 17, David is left with one, one response, and that is to marvel at the majesty of his maker. And so David's pondering pretty much leads him to praise. You know, it ought to lead you to praise God too when you think about it. I mean, just think about it. The idea that the God of the universe would take such delight in you and me that the God of the universe would have it in his mind to chase you down with his love, that the God of the universe would send his very own son as a sacrifice for yours and my sins. These sins that once separated us from our maker had been pinned to the cross. That a God would do something so marvelous like that for you and me is amazing. It's amazing. It ought to cause you to worship his name, honestly. It ought to cause you to praise him. It ought to cause you to devote more of your life to him. But I want to take it a step further and ask the question, what do these thoughts of God towards you and me reveal about our personal identity and worth? What do they reveal about us? Do they define who you are? And if not, who gets the right to define who you are? Is it social media? Is it TikTok? Is it the media? Is it politics? Is it your culture? Is it your race? Is it your background? Is it your family heritage? Who gets the right to define who you are? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I wanna suggest that what makes you you are God's thoughts towards you. And God's thoughts towards you are precious. They are precious, my friend. This is what I discovered over the last four months. God's thoughts towards you are precious. Look at David in verse 17 as he's reflecting on God's wisdom, on his omniscience and all that. He's left with this. He says in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You see, David has spent a good section, you know, describing the intricacies of God's handiwork, his intimate design of David with precision and great specificity, goes into describing the tenderness of God creating him in his mother's womb. I'll never forget when we had our first child. Well, I shouldn't say we had. Rennell had Isaac. But before she had him, we had a sonogram or an ultrasound. And we went to that first ultrasound, and I'll never forget because the image of Isaac was so clear. 
you can see his fat head just kind of swimming around in her womb. And, <laughs> and the sonographer, she's kind of rubbing the wand over Rennell's belly. And, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Isaac pressed his face up against her belly and he smiled. And you could see it, y'all. You could see it. And so we named him Isaac because Isaac means laughter. It's amazing what God does when he's fashioning us in the womb. Nowadays, we got 3D and 4D ultrasound that captures this, this brilliance of God, the handiwork of God. And guess what? It allows us to see that an embryo, even in its earliest stage of development, fulfills the criteria necessary for life. It's amazing what God's doing in the womb. You see, from the womb to the tomb, God's thoughts towards you are precious. But God's thoughts towards you are precious also from eternity past. Now, why do I say that? Because the text says he has ordained the days of our lives. Verse 16, second half, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. <laughs> you know what this means? This means that you were never an afterthought with God. He always had a purpose. He always had a plan. In fact, you are always on God's mind. You know, I love my kids. I love them to death. But they ain't always on my mind. I mean, I, mean, I get a little credit for making them, but I wasn't thinking about them when they was being made. I just kind of let the chips fall how they may, and out came four. That's just how it happened. I mean, just praise God for that. I won't always think about, but you know what this text says about you and me is that you were always on God's mind. The Bible says before God even got start started, he was thinking about you. Before he uttered the words, let there be light, he had already chosen you with his delight. Ephesians 1.4 says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You know what this means is that God was dancing with delight over you and me before he even created you. Before you were even created, before the world even began, he was already thinking about you. I'm clinging to this truth today. It means so much for what I'm going through. Because if I understand this truth correctly, life is not the grand sum of what's happened to me. And life is not the grand sum of what happens to you. Life is not the grand sum of your circumstances. No, life is the sum of God's sovereign purpose and plan. And like a master painter and a master artist, God is able to take different ingredients, even pulling from your pain and pulling from your present circumstances. And what's he doing? He's creating a work of art. You are a masterpiece for his glory. And he's using everything that you're going through, every little thing that you go through, God's working it out for his glory. That's what he does. The Bible says he causes all things to work together for good for those that love God and are, are called according to his purpose. So he's working everything out. And so God's thoughts towards you and me are precious. They're precious from eternity past. But get this, God's thoughts towards you and towards us are precious because he sees you in Christ. Don't miss this. He sees us in Christ. In fact, your identity in Christ is where you find your self-worth. That's where it's at. 
Your identity in Christ is where you find your definition, is where you find your sense of wholeness. In fact, this entire chapter, that's what David's pretty much been showing us. David has gained a level of self-awareness by way of a proper theology of God. The question for you and me is, what does the Bible say about our identity and worth in Jesus Christ? In order to understand and appreciate God's thoughts towards us in Christ, we need to first of all accept his judgment of us outside of Christ. You see, because the Bible says that outside of Jesus, we're all sinners condemned to die. It's bad news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means we're all sinners condemned to die. The penalty for that sin is death and eternal separation from God's presence. And don't get me wrong, God loves us, but his justice demands a verdict on yours and my sins. And if God could just simply find one person who he could call righteous, that would suffice. That would be enough for God. But God can't find even one. The Bible says in Romans 3, there was no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who does good, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Therefore, outside of Jesus Christ, we are all sinners condemned to die on death row until you come to those two famous, most appreciated words in all the New Testament. And those two words are, but God. But God. But God. Oh, I thank God for the buts in the Bible. Y'all know that. I like them big buts in the Bible. Oh, I love them. Sir mix a lot. <laughs> Because when you come to the Bible, you see God has a plan for us. But God, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for making a way. Thank you, God, for making a way. Did you get that? While you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus took our place on the cross. Now God's just judgment of us is satisfied once and for all. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because those who are in Christ Jesus get the benefit of God's eternal love to the end of time. Oh, praise his name. That ought to make you feel worthy today. That ought to make you feel like somebody because God loves you and he will never take his love from you in Christ. Years ago, my family, we used to live in Texas in a townhouse. And one night uh, we were surprised by a frantic knock that came to the door. And I opened the door, I'm like, who in the world's knocking that hard? So I opened the door and it was the fire department. It was three trucks outside. They said it's an electrical fire, two doors down. They said, hurry, hurry, only get what's valuable and get out. I said, oh Lord, we're gonna die. <laughs> so I started running all around the house. I'm scrambling and looking for my kids. I found little Miriam and then I got Selah, but Isaac and Dominic had disappeared. And I'm like, where in the world are Isaac and Dominic? They were six and seven at the time. 
So we're running frantic, looking all over the house for Isaac and Dominic. Next thing we know, we look up at the top of the stairs, and here they are coming downstairs, both of them holding in their arms an arm full of Legos. You know? <laughs> I said, what you doing with them Legos? They said, well, he said, get only what's valuable. I said, put them Legos down. Let's get out of here. And we laugh, but much like my kids held in their arms an arm full of Legos because they was precious, God holds you in the arms of his everlasting love in Christ. In Christ. That's the key. It's in Christ. You see, don't get me wrong. God loves all of us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. We get that. But there's a difference between the common grace of God and the common love of God and the more specific, the more intimate, the more incomprehensible, the unimaginable, the unmerited, the unending love of God that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a difference there. You see, God's thoughts towards us are precious, but you know what else they are? God's thoughts towards you and me are beyond measure. They're measureless, y'all. Look at verse 18. David says, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. He says they're just immeasurable. You ever wondered how many grains of sand actually exist in the world? Me neither. <laughs> Until I started doing some research on this passage and I started looking around and sure enough, there's this writer named David Baltner in his book called Spectrums. And he writes about a group of researchers from the University of, of Hawaii and they tried to calculate the number of grains of sand in the world. And so they said, if you just assume that a grain of sand is an average size and then you calculate how many grains are actually in a teaspoon and then you multiply that teaspoon by all of the sand on all of the beaches in all of the world and all of the deserts, then the earth has roughly seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand. Now, I didn't even know you could count past a trillion, <laughs> but this is incredible. Other estimates came in higher than that. It was 7.5 sextillion grains of sand. Anybody ever heard of sextillion? I mean, that's a pretty high number. What this looks like in numerical form is that's the number 75 followed by 17 zeros. Now, that's a lot of sand, but you ain't heard nothing yet. Another group of astronomers tried to do the same thing, but this time they wanted to measure the stars in the universe. And using the Hubble telescope and a calculator, they speculate that the number of stars in the universe are 70,000 million, million, million stars. Now, for context's sake, what this looks like is that's roughly 10,000 stars for every grain of sand that exists on Earth. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's to astound you with God's love. Because the Bible says, this is how much God thinks of you. It's beyond measure. It's beyond count. You think the stars in the universe are plentiful and you think they're voluminous and all that? No, this is how much God thinks of you. God is always, always, always thinking of you by name. Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4 says this, 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care? David says it's an exercise in futility to try to count God's thoughts towards you. You'll just simply exhaust yourself trying. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he thinks of us. Just look at the Bible and tally it up. I dare you. Flip through the New Testament and tally up all of the words of affirmation that are declared over you in Jesus Christ. I guarantee you'll run out of space on your tablet. Just try it. The Bible says that in Christ we are a new creation. The Bible goes on to say that in Christ we are chosen. The Bible says we are children of God. The Bible calls us royalty. The Bible says you're redeemed. The Bible says you are righteous. The Bible says you are a friend of God. You are forgiven. You are set free. You are the salt of the earth. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are secure. You are set apart. You are a saint. You are a child of God. You're a soldier of God, a citizen of heaven. In Christ, you are alive to God, an ambassador of the kingdom. You are accepted by God. You are cherished. You are dearly loved. And you are a joint heir and a trophy of his amazing grace. That's your identity right now. That's who you are in Jesus. I say that God thinks quite well of me as he thinks quite well of you in Jesus Christ. And so what this means is you're not who you think you are. You see, some of you come in here today and you feel like a victim. You're not a victim. You may have been victimized at some point in your life, but you're not a victim. Some of you say, well, I'm talking to my brothers at Lorraine Correctional right now, and they think that they're ex-felons. You are not an ex-felon. You are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That's who the Bible declares you to be. And you need to accept that you need to affirm that this is who you are in Jesus Christ. You are not your past. You are not your regrets. You are not your shame. You are his righteousness, and we ought to be glad and accept it. That's who we are. That's who we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, you are who God says you are, and don't let nobody tell you different. Don't let nobody tell you different. Look at David. He just simply gets lost in God's thoughts towards him, to where he seems to fall asleep, counting his blessings, all to wake up and find that God is still there. And here's where we find that God's presence is always near. It's always near. Look at verse 18, second half. When I awake, I'm still with you, is what David says. David says, whether I'm awake from a nap or whether I awake from death, it really don't matter. God is always near me. And if I could be honest with you, this verse right here is what gave me the greatest comfort over the last four months of my life. Because honestly, y'all, I was a mess. When I discovered this earth-shattering, groundbreaking news, I'm like, man, my, my, it was like I was in the twilight zone for a while. And one of my biggest challenges and my biggest worries was, was how was I going to break this news to my dad? Because my dad, he's never once made me feel like I wasn't his son. 
He always loved me. He always affirmed me. He was always, he, he was always just a, an encourager for me. And so I'm like, how am I going to break this groundbreaking, earth-shattering news to him? But it was the presence of God and his nearness that enabled me to do so. I called him on the phone and I said, Pops, we got to talk. He said, well, what is it about? I said, well, it's pretty important. We got to get together. And so we got together at a restaurant and we sat down and I told him, I said, this guy, you know, we both knew who he was. And I said, well, he claims that he's my biological father. And it turns out the test was conclusive. And as you can imagine, my dad was devastated. He was just as devastated as I was. And then he called me later on and he says, you know what it felt like for me when you told me that? I said, what? He says, it felt like I had literally been robbed. And so my heart, my heart broke for him. But not long after that, the Lord intervened. And something happened with our relationship. Where it was, it was once sort of fractured in a way, God was putting the pieces of our relationship back together. He had brought some reconciliation and there was just this sense of deeper connection with my dad that I never had before. And so what the enemy meant for evil, <laughs> God meant for good. And I give God praise for that. In fact, I had a conversation with my dad after that. And you know what he said? He says, you know what? I gave it some thought. He says, for 50 years, you've been my son. Ain't nobody going to take that from me now. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to take me. And so you could see how neither one of us saw it coming, but the Lord was putting the pieces of our relationship together. And I just praise God because my dad happens to be here with us today. <laughs> Man, stand up, Pops. Stand up, Pops. Stand up, Pops. Praise God. Praise God. Praise you, Lord. So, I want somebody in here to know, as I close this message, that in the midst of confusion and in the midst of painful circumstances, in the midst of your sorrow, your loss, and your shame, I'm here to tell somebody that God is able to provide his manifest presence in a way where it provides healing and redemption from your shame. God is here for somebody this morning, and all you got to do is trust him. Trust him. Assured of his love, trust him. Resting in his acceptance of you, trust him. Affirming your identity and worth only in Christ, God wants you to trust him. In a world filled with mixed messages about our identity and worth is the bottom line of this message. Rest in the nearness of God's love and affirmation and trust who he says you are in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Praise his holy name. Praise his holy name. Yes, yes. Father, thank you so much for your awesome wonder and your awesome plan for each one of our lives in Jesus Christ. Thank you for redemption that comes just through a relationship with you. And thank you, Lord, for never wasting our sorrows. Thank you for never wasting our pain. Thank you for always having a plan that glorifies your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.